I think I'm having an art attack. What's up, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Art Attack. This is our 98th episode. We are rounding dangerously close to that milestone. At our 100th episode, we're going to be doing a live event at... Gabba Gallery on November 23rd, time TBD, but we will release all that info for those of you in LA or who want to come out and see us. But do you want to say what our episode is? It is going to be about Lizzie. No kidding. (laughs) Zero people would show up. (laughs) Only my mother. (laughs) (laughs) You have a lot of friends, actually. I I would disagree with that. but you tell everybody what it's going to be about. I'm excited. I actually don't know anything really about this in the concrete, only in the abstract. But by the time of the show, I will know more. And it's on the intersections of hip hop and art. My life. That's basically what it's about. It's an autobiographical <laughs> tale about my life. So not about me. It's about you. Yeah, always. So, uh, and also, Lizzie, don't you do a lot of speaking... Uh, stuff about street art in Los Angeles. I so do, yeah. People want to book you, they can. How does that work? Oh, well, I do tours sometimes, private tours of street art, but I prefer to do lectures on the subject. I did one on controversy and ethical slippages at Christie's in Beverly Hills. So that is more my wheelhouse because I like a good lecture environment. Cool. And if people want to check my work out, you can go to justinbua.com so you get a context of who I am, what I do, uh, and I speak as well. And Lizzie and I actually speak together as well uh, through Art Attack. So today, guys, we are talking about uh, a very important artist, uh, an artist who you can guess who this is as I go along, not you, but the audience. But it will be named yes, the episode, so course. they'll know. Yes, of course. <laughs> But that's that's a good point. Maybe we shouldn't name this one. We should just give a clue as to what it could be. So this artist was the... Picasso said he was the father to us all. And Matisse said that as, as well. Uh, he was an important artist. He was a post-impressionistic painter. And his name was Paul Cezanne. And Paul Cezanne was a uh, interesting character who uh, was born in 1839. I really don't even remember. I'm thinking 1839 in the south of France. He came from the south of France. Uh, His dad had a lot of money. His dad was a banker. I do know that they were balling. And he was a very rare artist in the respect that he didn't go through what a lot of artists did go through, which is really trying to hustle and eat per commission and just working all the time to find the next paycheck because he at some point was independently wealthy. His dad left him 400,000 francs or something like that, which is the equivalent of a lot of money, like (laughs) just ridiculous amounts of money. So he didn't go through what, you know, Picasso or Matisse or a lot of artists went through. A lot of artists uh, historically really just didn't have a lot of money, and that is not the case for Cezanne. Balthus was another artist who was very wealthy, very, very wealthy artist, Toulouse-Lautrec as well. Uh, But for the most part, artists are broke. So Cezanne comes from a very small village in 1839 in the south of France and, you know, goes to law school 
and decides to drop out, like many artists' trajectories, and pursue a career as full-time painter, which his father is disturbed about. And what does he do? What do all artists do during this time of Impressionism do is they move to Paris. And in Paris is really where everything started for him. And you could pick it up from here, but I think that it's important to note that when he was in Paris, he came across Pissarro, the mind, the brain trust of Impressionism, the Jew of the crew, as they say. <laughs> uh, so Pissarro was really a father figure uh, to Cezanne, believed in Cezanne at a time when a lot of people really didn't believe in Cezanne, really nobody did, and encouraged him and later really became an equal and a, a painting partner of his. Now, you mentioned that Cezanne was a post-impressionist, and so I think in order to really sink into the meat of what that means, we have to super quickly identify what it is to be an impressionist so we know what it is to work after that movement. And we have a whole episode on impressionism, but I think the salient facts in this conversation is that impressionism is all about observing nature, about scrutinizing life as it is, light as it reflects on objects, and the artists who worked in the years following Impressionism's heyday, they felt like Impressionism was vacant, that it's all about the surface and that it doesn't really have anything of true gravitas. And people like Cezanne wanted to add something more rich with something intellectual or uh, just something beyond the surface to work underneath what it was that the Impressionists had already established. So I think that's why Impressionism is also in his title. He's a post-Impressionist because he does bring a lot of the aesthetics that his predecessors had had firmly established, meaning his color palette was very light and his treatment of dappled lighting, we see that in a lot of his work, and also some of the subject matter itself. But where he departs is really what makes him significant. And he wanted to create something substantive and durable out of Impressionism. And the way that I see his work is almost like he's looking at a landscape or looking at a still life through the lens of an architect that everything is about form and geometry and shapes, and it's very structural, and it almost looks like a blueprint. So I see that register in some of his more significant landscapes like Mount Saint-Victoire. I think we definitely should talk about that and his still lives. But to me, just an overall framework of Cezanne is that he is looking at Impressionist perspectives from a more logical, analytical, architectural eye. So what Cezanne took from the Impressionists was definitely the process. So you can only create so much in your studios. And so when you leave, you go outside. That's really what Impressionism is. You know, you're going outside, you're capturing nature, you're capturing light as it's falling. It's the impression of light. And that's really the process of just going outside and plein air painting is, is really what kept him in the space of Impressionism. That being said, he also died because of that. Do you know how he died? No idea. So he was doing a plein air painting, as he always did, and he got caught in a storm. And uh, he was about 67 years old, 
was painting in a storm, made it back, but got really sick. Went back the next day to paint on plein air and collapsed. Then he died in bed of pneumonia a couple days later. So he died as an artist. In as a result field. of his process. Yeah, as a oh, result a of his process. But I think what was interesting, and let me just let me just digress into his earlier work because his earlier work was very typical of wanting to be an academic, uh, really wanting to be loving artists like Caravaggio and Chiaroscuro, and a lot of it was very dark. If you look at his early titles, you know, rape and murder, it was very, the subjects were very dark. Uh, seemed to stem a lot from Greek mythological, that world. And his, his work had a lot of chiaroscuro, and he wasn't really a great draftsman. His academic work was okay. It, was, it wasn't bad. But he really aspired to do that. And then when he found Impressionism, that's when his palette lightened up. That's when we saw a... a a big lightening of the palette. And then when he was in Paris, he was kind of like one of many, right? He was around a lot of, you know, heavies. Manet, Monet, Toulouse-Lautrec, guys who were real great draftsmen. I think he wanted to be that. So when he met them, his, his palette really did lighten up. It became a lot more colorful. But really what you said is true. The, the geometric abstraction of how he started seeing things, when he really moved back to the south of France, that's where everything started to really happen for him. And when he started to see things in a, in a geometric way or a spherical way, it was really all about spheres and cones and triangles. So, for example, his, his fruit was no he really wasn't concerned anymore with just the realistic interpretation of an apple. I mean anybody could paint a still life like that. He was gradating in a geometric coloristic way where you saw form change via color. Now, everybody says that. But as a painter, we all know that it's via color via value because value is paramount to color. So value first, color second, right? Right value, it's going to look great. You know, right value, wrong color, still going to look good. Wrong value, right color, it's going to be a hot mess. So he was very cognizant of gradating through patches of color in planal ways. That's what made him different. You take that and you add the dimensionality and the skewed perspective of really a cubistic mind frame. So we're looking at this now this apple which is being interpreted through planes of color transitions. And then you're adding on that you're seeing the apple from above and from below and from the side and from behind. Now, all of a sudden, you have what's called Cezanne. Right. And that's, from my perspective, his most significant contribution. And I do think that he used a color as one integer to produce this kind of multiplicity of perspectives, but the perspectives and the fact that he was completely disavowing linear perspective, which presumes a one-point view. So in a traditional still life, you have a viewer who is stationed firmly in one area, and then the way that the still life is depicted is the way that viewer would see the still life from that one place. And Cezanne thought, what about if I moved around? And his still lives are so incredibly innovative for this reason. And actually, he didn't paint everything on plein air because the still lives were sure. in the studio. 
And that's another disruption of Impressionism because Impressionism is all about spontaneity. And this was phenomenally deliberate, his work in the studio, especially with the still lives. So anyway, he would walk around and he spent such a long time painting these apples that they would routinely rot. And then he ended up using fake apples just so he could preserve his materials and that he wouldn't go through real apples. So that tells us, gives us a sense of time, how long he actually spent working from below, from above, moving to the left, slightly pivoting himself, and then painting it all within the same apple. And so I think the visual result is pretty dazzling because we as a viewer, were totally disoriented. Where am I standing? Where am I? Is the apple, where is the apple in relation to my body? And that's always what overwhelms me when I see one of his still lives is that I have no idea where I am. It's almost this dizzying sense of space collapsing, space on top of me, space below me. And that is proto-cubistic. Nobody had done anything like this before. And so in my opinion, Cezanne, for this reason, is the first truly avant-garde modern artist. Yeah, and I don't think anyone really would disagree with you. I mean, if you really look at it, we could argue that there were total renegades and rebels like, you know, Luncheon sur le déjeuner by Manet. I mean, there's a weird sense of space, but it's figurative and it's classical, but at the same time, it's floating and there's an intentionality to the floating figure in the background specifically. It does mess with perspective, but Cezanne did it in a different way. And you mentioned linear perspective, but we're also talking about atmospheric perspective. When we talk about his plein air paintings or his landscape paintings, there's something very weird about the fact that it's not necessarily uh, getting less saturated or more atmospheric in space, which is what really makes atmospheric perspective, which is first uh, created by Leonardo da Vinci and obviously was used by all of his contemporaries, but he doesn't do that. He has flat shapes of color houses and forest and trees and sky all occupying space in a in a shape and holding importance so the buildings really become the landscape much like Frank Lloyd Wright right like he integrates everything so beautifully and seamlessly and the background could be the foreground in terms of how richly saturated and not atmospheric it is and so you start looking at those patterns which he's seeing, right? He's seeing these really complex uh, fractal patterns in nature, much like a, a Leindecker or, or more importantly, like a Frank Brangwen. Frank Brangwen and Dean Cornwell, probably two of the greatest artists ever of all time. Brangwen was the teacher of Cornwell. But if you look at their work, it's almost tapestry. It's got a tapestry quality to it. And that's what Cezanne did. So you almost have to think that that work is also a precursor of not just modern art cubism, but of artists like Diebenkorn. When you talk about those San Francisco streets, right? There's something about that. And I thought about that for the first time because no one mentions that. So I feel like Justin Bua, the art history professor, was like, well, wait a minute. <laughs> Write a book. Did, no, but didn't Diebenkorn, like if you really look at his landscapes and how he flattened everything spatially, 
Cezanne was doing that to a more or lesser extent. But then you could even go further and say Rothko. So I think what you're picking up on is that patch of unmodulated color because you mentioned atmospheric perspective, and the purpose of that is to create a sense of naturalistic depth. Well, I'm so confused why you say Rothko. I know you hate him, but... No, but I don't understand (laughs) the analogy. Well, because a Diebenkorn in the freeway L.A. paintings and in the San Francisco ones that you mentioned flattens the space by painting this one swatch of unmodulated color. And you're saying that comes from Cezanne, and that eventually could evolve into a Rothko. Or I guess Rothko is before Diebenkorn, too, but I'm saying that visually there are similarities. And so I don't agree with you, but that's okay. <laughs> I could, I mean, I would agree with you if I was tripping on acid and I could really get into the depth of what you were saying. Like, you could relate anything to anything, but I feel like I don't really think so because what Cezanne was doing was specifically with landscape and he was understanding patterns and making them more important and integral to the composition and his process. And making it really just about that and nothing else, as where Rothko, to me, is making it about just as like a a swatch of color. Actually, many historians discuss Rothko as a distillation of a landscape. Sorry, wait, what are you saying? No, as a distillation of the land. Oh, okay, as a distillation of the landscape. Uh, With horizon lines, and you can see a loose structure of mountains and some kind of natural form colliding with another. And so in that respect, he is a a follower of Cezanne. Did he say that? Is that something <laughs> that he said? That's what I'm saying. Oh, okay. Because, I mean, just it shows you that with rhetoric and verbiage, we can make anything work. But the reality is when we, going back to Diebenkorn, you look at that and you're like, wow, he's, I mean, he's, he's done it to such a high level, Diebenkorn, right? He's, he's taken these abstract streets and, I mean, he's taken streets and buildings and abstracted them to almost flat shapes, which is brilliant. Cezanne does that in a certain way. He abstracts things to flat shapes. We don't see this kind of hopper-esque light. He doesn't really, he's not doing what the Impressionists do, which is really discovering how light is falling on the landscape and buildings with correct cast shadows and core shadows. You know, warm light casting cool shadows, cool light casting warm shadows. He's not following those laws of a traditional painter. He's kind of making up his own laws. And therein, which you said earlier, which is like, seeing this landscape much like the still life from all these different perspectives where it's at times dizzying but at times calming because perhaps that is how we see the world as we walk through the world in motion. Oh, absolutely. And so I think almost... Oh, that was really good. Yeah, I'm that so was. Sorry. Do you want to I'm just... patting myself on the back. I just have to take a moment. <laughs> moment of silence. Yes. But it's a great point, and it's almost filmic in that way, that especially the Mount Saint-Victoire, there is that ambulatory sense that we are observing and experiencing the nature around us almost as if we're on a hike or a mm, walk. And that's it's really something, smart. It's pleasant and it's overwhelming and it's majestic and we see that entirety of the experience of being outside actually being and and walking around in that collapsed single image and I think that that is a phenomenal innovation and for me impressionism is so much about seeing the world about really seeing it not intellectualizing it and Cezanne is about feeling how you are as you exist in the world. And intellectualizing it. Like oh, he become, sure. he, it becomes a much more intellectual process by examining it. You know, he's not just there 
this is what I see. This is the moment. That's what an impressionist does. I'm capturing the light right now, and I got to pack up my paint and go back to my atelier because the light's gone. It's nighttime now, and that was a moment of time, which is beautiful. It's incredible. En plein air. Amazing. But Cezanne doesn't do that. He investigates it. He dissects it. He is a scientist about it. And so what you said about taking a hike, that was really brilliant. It's amazing that you said that, and yet you made that comment about Rothko. Who are you, Dr. Jekyll, Mr. <laughs> Hyde? I mean, I'm We so can confused. never do an episode on Rothko because it would end in fisticuffs, and I would lose. No, <laughs> not true. You never know. I'd win. You'd win. But, um, <laughs> you know, I, but I feel like, you know, my grandfather always had Cezans on the wall. He had the card players, a print of the card players. Uh, and it always was in my my mind's eye of nostalgia, but I never really got him until the last couple of years. You know what I mean? I feel like Cezanne is not an artist that everyone gets, which is interesting because he's certainly successful. He's in every art history book. Everybody knows him. Picasso called him the father of us all, right? So, like, he's an important artist. And this is an artist, by the way, as he was painting. Remember, he's independently wealthy. He doesn't really need to do anything. He's doing it because he wants to really study art and become something. He, be he became his own artist. But Vollard, who is a big gallerist in the art world, takes his work, has a one-man show. He blows up uh, patrons like Gertrude Stein and, and Hemingway and F. Scott Fitzgerald fall in love with his work. Next thing you know, he's super successful. I mean, it was almost like overnight. He grinded and grinded and grinded until people discovered who he was. And when he discovered who he was, they got it out to all of the you know people who knew about the world and deemed him important. And now his body of work is worth guess how much? No idea. Just take a guess. I'm terrible at monetizing art. Uh, how much is his body of yeah. work in total? Yeah. $2 billion. $65 billion. Wow. Not bad. Not too bad. Not too shabby, <laughs> say Zanny. But also Kazan. the fact... Oh, <laughs> that was so funny. You want to you yeah, tell our listeners about that? No, I said we had an episode and we spell everything out. We texting back and forth. We spell everything out phonetically. Like we're having an episode on Kazan. Right or no? No, you said, no, no. So I was saying, why don't we do an episode on Cezanne? And you responded something like, "Okay, well, we'll do so and so, and we'll do Kazan." And I'm thinking, "Oh no, I have no idea who right. that artist is. I have to do some work." <laughs> <That's right. laughs> and then I wrote anyway, back, and then I wrote back, "Yeah, and then we should do an episode on degas, monet, <laughs> and manet." And I was M A N dash it you know etc and so it's always fun to play with names like that because a lot of people do pronounce you know wherever you're from the south i love the i love the work of edgar day guys i think he's an important <laughs> artist in the canon of art history but a lot of people pronounce things differently and that's great and i you know what's amazing when people get angry for not pronouncing it in the language that it was natively you spoken you know or born in like you know Edouard Monet. I don't know, but no, you don't have to say Monet. You know, you could say Monet. It's fine. You don't have to say, you don't, have to, don't say moan it, you know, or if you do own it, but say Monet. You don't have to be like Monet. Mon, uh, but that sounds Monet. so seductive the way you say no, it. I'm only going like, to say it like that. But nobody should say that. It's like saying, you know, Caravaggio. You have, what do you have to do? You have to do it with an Italian accent all of a sudden? It's you ridiculous. Don't. Caravaggio. It's, it's culturally appropriative. But to get back to Shazam, 
(laughs) (laughs) So I think that Uh, your point about not really understanding him is really important to mention because I think that that is more of a universal experience than not, that people look at the work, don't really understand it, they see it as kind of impressionistic, but then what's going on with this still life, and then they move on to the Renoir next to him. And I think it is so integral to really tease out what was similar to what came before him Mm -hmm. and most significantly what is different because this is how we understand art. It is all through context. The only way that we can fully appreciate the value of the Impressionists is by looking at what they were subverting. And the only way that we can truly understand Cezanne is by understanding Impressionism and knowing what it was that was different about his work. And for me, the way that I intellectualize the difference is really an increase in flattening of the space and using the color palette of the Impressionists to really disrupt our concept of time and movement. And that eventually would be really influential to Picasso in Cubism because Cubism is all about the fourth dimension of time and how objects look as they progress in space. But it's sort of the opposite with a Cezanne because he's the one progressing in space. He's the one who's moving around and then painting from the perspective that he's in at the moment. And so I think Picasso shifts that dynamic where what we see is what's moving, not necessarily the painter, but with a Cezanne, we get a sense of him physically reorienting the space as he's pushing through it. Yeah, and I think also... uh it's important to note that as he's laying down color, he's using grids and planes of color to turn forms. And that has never that was never really done like that. And an artist today play with that all the time. You look at the work of John Asaro, and he is absolutely changing planal surfaces with bits of color in space, right? So like an artist like John Asaro is you know, whether he knows it or not, he is peripherally influenced by the works of Cezanne. Picasso is directly influenced by the works of Cezanne. Diebenkorn, questionable, uh, but I believe influenced by Cezanne. Rothko, influenced by the work of a dog peeing on a rug. But the point is, is that there are so many people who are influenced by him, and he is he's a pivot. In art history, as we're, as our trajectory is moving forward through time, we have to stop, recognize Cezanne because it's a pivot into modern art, really change the game in the direction. And so like when I have students who are like, well, I don't get Cezanne, he's not important. People are so easy to dismiss everything, right? I mean, that's just, you know, if you don't know it, you're not familiar with it, it doesn't appeal to you aesthetically, it's easy to dismiss. You kind of to, like what you just did with Rothko. No, but I did it in a very, I mean, I've thought about it a lot. You no, know what I, I mean? know. And then I've dismissed the bejesus out of it. But my point is like, it takes time to really understand why he is a significant artist uh, in the scope of art history. Now, that being said, is Cezanne my favorite artist? No, absolutely not. Totally no way. <laughs> but I'll tell you something that's interesting is that that card player painting, which is my favorite painting of his, because he did multiple card players. Uh, card he worked in in Syriatim just like the Impressionists did. did, and so he yeah. has many renderings of Mount San Victor, many renderings yeah. of a still life, and also of the card players. Yeah, and that card player piece was the one that inspired my poker player painting, and he did it 
in a way that was just really different because it wasn't really active. You know what I mean? A lot of his work is just like a still life. It feels almost dormant sitting back for us to experience the game for them. There's a moment of pause that we have to watch and it becomes introspective and we can intellectualize the moment by telling our own narrative or projecting our narrative onto the scene. Uh, before that, when card players were depicted, it was usually like throwing down a card or opening a hand or all this action, right? It's very active. Even my painting of the poker players was very active. Um, but he doesn't really need to do that. He's not into gesture. He's not into gestalt, rhythm, flow. He is the opposite. He is painting figures in a wooden way, but it doesn't bother me. Not wooden like an Edward Hopper interprets the figure, but wooden in a way where it's really not about the rhythm and the soul of that. It's about the experience and the intellectual experience, rather, of the composition. And compositionally, by the way, uh, another thing which I always say is the highest level of an artist process uh, he was very good at composition. His, his compositions are very balanced. They're very interesting. You don't get bored. There's no holes. There's not like a, your, your eyes not wandering away. He keeps you very busy and occupied with the way that he's able to hold space and to play with space. Yeah, I think that's a nice way of describing that painting. For me, what's always struck me is the moment of quiet solitude and pause that the painting makes me mm -hmm. feel. And I think that's also a legacy of Impressionism in a certain way because Impressionists were deeply influenced by the aesthetic of Japanese woodblock prints. Sure. And those prints, they doubly embrace the, or I guess simultaneously embrace the positive of a figure, but also the negative space around that figure. And I see Cezanne digesting that concept and embracing the void in the card players, that it's almost this moment in between moments. And I think that could come as a psychological exercise from the Japanese prints. So I think that he is synthesizing a lot. He's taking in non-Western traditions and he's taking in the work of the Impressionists and then he's reconfiguring them and then producing something that is such an incredibly valuable disruption of space and time like we've like we've talked about and mostly of perspective. And he's not personally my favorite artist either, but I think that he is the launching off point for so many people and we need to acknowledge that. So if you don't know Cezanne, recognize, because he's an important artist. Very, I think. I mean, he's got to be one of the most important our artists. There's, there, there's those artists that are like, you know, ripples, and then there's artists that are waves, and then there's artists that are tsunamis, like Michelangelo is a tsunami, Leonardo da Vinci is a tsunami. And these, you know, obviously this is very subjective, but my opinion. Cezanne is, is, he's a wave, you know, he's an important wave and perhaps created a tsunami uh, by, by creating artists like Picasso and Brock and, and changing the landscape and modern art. And, it, and in that way, he's got to be a tsunami because he's really the father of modern art. Or perhaps a Hiroshiga great wave. Yes. <laughs> to go back to the Japanese Hi ukiyoes. Hiroshiga. <laughs> Hiroshige. Okay, guys. Well, please leave us a comment. Be kind. Give us five stars. And we do this because we love it. We love art. We love talking about art. We love sharing art. And you guys should share your comments with us on Stitcher, iTunes, iHeartRadio, wherever. Okay?
peace.